All right, we're continuing our study through Romans chapter 8 here on the Listener's Commentary. And in this session, we're going to be looking at Romans 8.26 all the way down to the end of the chapter. And this is an incredible culmination to everything Paul has said, not only in Romans 8, but really in chapters 5 through 8 and really beginning in chapter 1. This is like a grand finale moment in the letter to Romans. Now, even though we broke uh, in between 25 and 26, we did so just for the sake of length of recordings, and yet we can't lose the connection uh, with everything that's preceded here, particularly in verses 26 through 30. Verses 26 through 30, as a paragraph, is directly tied to everything that Paul was saying in verses 18 through 25. It's clearly linked verbally, just with key words, like the word groan shows up in uh, 8.22, 8.23, and then here in 8.26, the word sonship shows up in 15.23, and here in 29. Even the word glory or glorified shows up in 17, 18, 21, and then in this section in verse 30. And so all of this ties this section together very closely. We're still, in other words, expounding on this theme of suffering and glory, suffering and glory. In fact, the last word of verse 30, which is really the the first main paragraph in this session, is the word glorified. It's the same as the word glorified in verse 17. And so verses 26 through 30 is a further part of Paul's elaboration of suffering with Christ and being glorified with Christ. In fact, the overall point is quite clear. Even as those who have been justified by faith in Jesus, who stand firm in God's grace, who are led by the Spirit in the way of righteousness, in the present time, we experience suffering, weakness, groaning, frustration. We experience uh, the bondage of decay that this world is experiencing. But in all these negative experiences, the Spirit gives to our spirit comfort, hope, strength, endurance, patience. That's really the point of this whole section, of which verses 26 through 30 is the final component. So let's look at some of the details. Paul begins verse 26 by saying, in the same way, that is, in the same way that creation groans, in the same way that we groan, uh, well, in the same way also the Spirit groans in verse 26. That's what he means by the same way. So in the same way, he says, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. And so in the midst of our weakness, by which he is just describing the state of affairs that he mentioned above, right? The, the cre- creation being subject to futility, us you know, groaning in the midst of that, having to suffer and endure difficulty. That's what it means by weakness. So our weakness is just the difficulties of living in this broken, fallen world with all that that entails. So the Spirit helps us in those moments, right? The Christian life is life in the Spirit, and the Spirit himself helps us in our weaknesses. Um, and specifically, Paul's going to focus on, he helps us in our praying. That's where he's going to, there's other ways I'm sure he helps here. Paul focuses uh, that he helps us in our praying. So he says this, For we don't know how to pray as we should. So here in the present time, in the midst of this broken world, when life is hard, complex, confusing, difficulty, as we're groaning, longing for the future, and we don't always understand what's going on in the present, right? We don't always know how to pray, both individually and corporately as God's people. Sometimes it's just like, 
I don't even know what to say. I'm not even sure how to ask. I don't even know what, what God's will is in the midst of this situation. So we don't even know how to pray as we should. Well, here's how the Spirit helps. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Let's process that whole phrase. So the Spirit helps us here in our already but not yet experience, as we're not sure how to pray, the Spirit comes and he intercedes. Verse 27 helps us understand this interceding when he says that he intercedes for us according to the will of God. And so the Spirit sort of comes into not only our individual praying, but even the, the saints praying there in verse 27. All of us as God's peoples, we're crying out to God, and he takes what we're trying to say, and he he communicates that according to the will of God. He helps helps bring this praying in sync with God's will in some sort of way. So he intercedes for us. And Paul says he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So somehow the Spirit is interceding. That interceding is groaning. And it's groaning too deep for words. Literally, the, the phrase too deep for words is just the word without words. So in Greek, it's one word, and it's the word for wordless groanings. So we don't have speech. We don't have any words to say, and the Spirit somehow takes these groanings, these right, and he himself is groaning along with us, and he somehow translates that to be according to the will of God, according to verse 27. Now, we may not understand fully what all that looks like, what all that, um, right, like how the Spirit does that, I think we know the experience when we're not sure what to pray. We don't even have words to say, right? The weight of difficulty, hardship has, has washed over us so deeply, and we've got nothing left. And somehow in that moment, Paul is saying that the Spirit's there. He's involved, and he helps us in that moment and takes what we're groaning about and feeling, and he translate those groanings according to the will of God. Somehow, someway, is what Paul seems to be saying. He goes on in verse 27, he says, And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, or literally just according to God. In other words, God, who's the heart searcher, that's the he at the beginning of verse 27, so he who searches the hearts is God. He knows what the mind of the Spirit is. He can take the Spirit's groanings, and he can understand what the Spirit is trying to get at, because he, the Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to God. And so, the Spirit interceding in the midst of our groanings, he, he's interceding according to God, according to the mind of God, according to the will of God, according to the character of God. He and God are in sync. And so in that moment where we have nothing left to say, uh, the Spirit takes all of that. God understands all of that because he and the Spirit are on the same page and God makes sense of it and knows what to do with it. That's the point of verses 26 and 27. Now, let me take a brief aside and just deal with one little theological question that emerges at this point from the text that I think is at least important for us to think through. And that's this. Some have uh, read verses 26 and 27 and assumed it was talking about uh, praying in tongues. Personally, I have several problems with this assumption, but just from the text itself, two are very noteworthy here from this text. I just don't think that's what Paul is talking about here 
whatever we think about praying in tongues, speaking in tongues, or any of that, it just doesn't seem that's what Paul's talking about here uh, in any case, right? And the reason for that is this. Paul assumes that this is a universal Christian experience. Here in verses 26 and 27, he just assumes this is something all Christians everywhere at some point or another experience. Whereas when Paul talks about tongues in 1 Corinthians 12, he he makes it explicit that it's not something that is for everybody. In fact, 1 Corinthians 12, 28 says that, that speaking in tongues is not for every Christian. It's not for everybody. Only some have that gift. And so that seems to be a tension between those two things here in verse 26 and 27 and what Paul says about speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians 12. The second problem I have with it is that this is specifically described in verse 26 as wordless groanings, wordless groanings. Um, In other words, it's literally from the word to speak, and it just put a prefix before it that means without speech, groanings without words. And so it's not referring to uh, non-understandable words. It's referring to something that's unspoken or inarticulate or wordless. It's just like, I can't even talk, right? Like wordless groanings. And so just from this text alone, it seems like Paul's describing a different experience other than what some people mean by praying in tongues. And so I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. The point Paul is making is he's picturing us as God's people at that point of prayer, struggling to know how to pray, struggling to even have any words to say, to know what God's purposes are, full of longing, perhaps even full of sorrow, And the Spirit then is joining in with that to groan out to God the right request. That's what Paul is picturing at this point in his letter. And it's at this point we get the well-known verse uh, about God working all things together for good for those who love him. And so we transition from verse 27 with the Spirit helping us in our praying according to God to verses 28 through 30, which emphasize that God's response to this interceding work of the Spirit will be for the good of God's people, uh, that God's response will be working out uh, their being conformed to the image of His Son, which ultimately culminates in our glorification and us receiving glory. And so verses 28 through 30 is all about God's response to this interceding work of the Spirit. And so Paul says in verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Notice that verse 28 begins with, and we know, we know this is common Christian knowledge, and it probably stands in contrast to us not knowing how to pray. So in that moment when we don't know how to pray and we're overwhelmed with the weight of the brokenness of this world and we don't know what to say, here's something we do know. We know that God causes all things to work together for good, right? And so not just some things, not just most things, God works all things, all things, which includes Everything, no matter how bad they might appear, somehow God is able to take all of that and bring ultimate good out of that. Um, between the all things of our like experience and the ultimate achievement of God's good purposes lies the divine working, as the way one author says it. Like God is at work in the midst of all of this 
to bring good out of it. Um, and so he says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good, for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And I just need to say that we don't always know when that good will happen. We don't always know what that good will be. That good may be an ultimate good that we don't even experience until glory, right? We're not sure, but God is going to take all of this stuff and somehow he's going to bring good out of it because God is like that. God is working for our good. That's what we know. And that's what we cling to in the midst of this, that God is working for our good. And in the following context, the ultimate focus of this working for our good is really on our glorification, on our being conformed to the image of his son. And so there is this hope. We're saved in hope, as Paul said up above, right? And so we are looking forward to what God's going to do in the future. And the focus here is really on the ultimate good that we're going to receive. And so notice uh, he begins verse 29 with for... Again, that's actually the word hati in Greek, which is the word because. And so the sequence that begins in verse 29 really provides the basis for the confidence of verse 28. How do we know this? How can we have confidence that God is working for our good, right? How can we rest assured in our ultimate good? Well, because, verse 29, because those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. This sequence that's described in verses 29 through 30 is the basis for the confidence of verse 28. We know God's working for our good because we know where God is taking us. Now, notice that in verse 29, this is for those whom he foreknew. Those whom he foreknew are those who love God in verse 28. That's what it refers back to. And so it is those who love God who are called according to his purpose and whom God foreknew. And also notice the predestination thing that shows up here. He says specifically what they're predestined to. Notice that it's they were predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So that's specifically what they're predestined to. It's really important to notice those details because the word predestination has become associated with a particular post-Reformation theology that sometimes is wrestling with questions beyond what a specific text is wrestling with, right? And I think we need to understand the term in the context of each individual text where Paul or the biblical author uses it. So here, Paul doesn't say people are predestined to faith. Here, he says people are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So this is being predestined to the results of salvation. Being conformed to the image of his son is becoming like Jesus in resurrected glory, in character, in all of that. And so those whom he foreknew, God also predestined that they're going to inherit this great, glorious endpoint, this being conformed to the image of the Son, becoming like Jesus, so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. The goal is for Jesus to have this all these siblings a part of as a part of God's family, all right? And so that's the ultimate goal where we get to be like him, we get to share the family likeness, we get to enjoy his character, and we get to enjoy the outcome, the resurrection that he enjoys. And so those whom God 
foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of Jesus, be part of his family. And these, verse 30, whom he predestined, he called. Um, and in the New Testament, usually calling is through the gospel. That's in Paul's theology. You can see that explicitly in 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, where people are called um, through the gospel. So he, those whom he predestined to this end, he called through the gospel. Those whom he called, um, he justified. So as they responded to that call, they responded to the gospel, they were justified. And Paul's explained how that happened in chapter 3 and chapter 4. And these whom he justified, the ultimate end for them is that they're going to be glorified. That's where it's going. And so, and Paul can state it as an accomplished fact because that's just the way he sees it, that justified people are going to be glorified people. If you've been given a favorable verdict in the present by virtue of justification, that anticipates the great favorable outcome in the future of justification and glorification at the end. And so these whom he also justified, he glorified. And that's the ultimate good that we look forward to. So as God is in the midst of our groaning and our suffering and our, our dealing, working for our good, the ultimate good is not even necessarily fixing things in the here and now. That might happen. God might do that, right? But in the context, the ultimate focus is on our glorification. And that's our ultimate good. Uh, not just worldly comfort, but our glorification in the future when we inherit everything that's promised to us as the children of God. Now, at that point, Paul has wrapped up everything that he started to say in chapter 5. He's worked through the deep waters of chapters 6 and 7, and now he's kind of come full circle uh, to us having this assurance of hope, this assurance of glory, right? That he started chapter 5 with this assurance of hope and glory, right? And that we we glory in our sufferings because of the hope. We glory in our hope. We glory in God who makes all this possible. So he started there in chapter 5. He's come full circle. He's wrapped all that up. And so what we have left in chapter 8 is sort of like the grand finale, a grand rhetorical uh, flourish celebrating all that God has done for us, celebrating our security as God's children in the very love of God. And so there's really nothing new in the last handful of verses of chapter 8. There's just sort of like this wonderful grand finale of celebration of what God has done for us. So let me read verses 31 through 39 and just hear the celebration from Paul. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God's the one who justifies. So who's the one who can condemn? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and he's the one who intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? And the implied answer to that question is nothing can separate us, right? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing in this broken uh, down shipwreck of a world in this fallen world, groaning as it is, nothing in this world can separate us from the love of Christ. Tribulation can't, distress can't, persecution can't, nothing can. Just as it is written, verse 36, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We're being considered like sheep to be slaughtered. But 
in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, what a beautiful grand finale, right? What a beautiful rhetorical flourish there at the end as Paul just celebrates the security and assurance we have in Christ, in God, in God's love, because of what God did for us through Christ and the Spirit. And so our first concluding reflection has to be that uh, we have hope in the present because of the certainty of our future. Like We have complete security. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We have victory. We are more than conquerors. We overwhelmingly conquer. We have a promise of renewal and restoration of all things, new bodies, new creation, new life, right? Like our hope in the present, and we can endure difficult things because of the certainty and assurance about the future. And so that's the first real reflection out of the section is just the hope and the certainty we have because of what God has done for us in Christ. The second reflection I would offer as we wrap up this section is just, what do we believe about God? What do we believe about God? And what Paul has said here in this grand finale, and really what he has said all throughout this section, is that um, God is for us. God is for us. Here's God the Spirit dwelling in us, feeling our heartache, feeling our pain, feeling it so much that he groans along with us. And then God the Father hearing the groanings and taking that and working for our good and doing it because of Jesus who died for us. God is for us. God is for you. And all of our Christian living flows out of knowing this, believing this deeply, uh, that God is on our side and God is working for our good. Paul has painted a picture of God as someone who is full of grace, mercy, and love, and is on our side working for us. All of creation, what can separate us from his love shown to us in Christ? Nothing, nothing in all of creation can do that. Um, N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, the way to the confidence and joy of which Paul here speaks is not through a general or vague sense of religion or even a general vague sense of God, but of a specific and focused belief and trust in this God, this Father, Son, Spirit, who is on our side and working for our good. All throughout chapter 8, it's been a Trinitarian view of God who is working for us, freeing us from sin, death, condemnation, suffering, struggle, who is helping us endure and get through this whole thing. And so what do you believe about God? Paul wants you to believe that God is for you. God is for you, and he's working for your good.